God bless you. Thank you, singers, musicians. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. You brave the rain. You know, I mean, sometimes it's too, too snowy. People don't come to church. Sometimes it's too rainy. They don't come to church. Sometimes it's too sunny. People don't come to church. But not victory. You're here. No rain, no snow. You're like the postman. Rain, sleet, hail, or snow, and you're still showing up. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Isn't God good? Amen. Amen. Anybody have a carefree life? Not a problem in the world? Please, I want to change places with you. Amen. If you do. The reality of it is, on planet Earth, we will have challenges. We will have struggles. We will have trials. We will have tribulations. And uh, there are a lot of uh, biblical reasons we can give for all that we go through. But one very practical biblical reason is it makes us long for heaven. Makes us look forward to being with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Our life on this earth is just a small little sliver compared to eternity that's unending. So one day in heaven, all our tears will be wiped away. New bodies, glorified bodies. Men, you're going to have that six-pack you always wanted. Looks everything perfection in heaven. And it's going to be forever. It'll never fade. Never pass away. Perfect joy, no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering, no more pain. You know, someone once said, our time on earth is just a short little dress rehearsal preparing us for all eternity. I could tell some of you are not too impressed this morning by what I'm saying because you don't know the glories of heaven and you don't have a pilgrimage mentality. You don't realize we're just passing through. Amen. So even the greatest trial is going to seem so insignificant. That's what Paul said. He says the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Another place he said, for I reckon, I reckon the sufferings are working for me an eternal and exceeding weight of glory in heaven. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's going to be worth it all. Amen. Amen. Brother Tom, would you just stand, lift up your voice, and give us a testimony? Amen. Yes. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes. Amen. Amen. Give the Lord praise. 
Anybody need a miracle this morning? Come on, just according to your faith, so be it unto you. Reach out to God. Believe God this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. I want to share with you a few thoughts from one of the most widely known and best loved parables of Jesus. The parable of the prodigal son. Although a common name for the parable, it is nowhere found in the scriptures where he's called the prodigal son. Isn't it interesting, a couple of weeks ago I preached on Easter Sunday about doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas had one moment of doubting and we labeled him for all eternity, for all uh, the last 2,000 years, doubting Thomas. The other disciples, they doubted. The scriptures explicitly tell us that they doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. But Thomas, for some reason, that stuck with him. But, but nowhere in the Bible is he called Doubting Thomas. Jesus didn't call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, matter of fact, the scriptures tell us in uh, John chapter 11 that when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the disciples said, why are you going to Jerusalem? They're going to kill you. And, and when Thomas heard it, he said, let us go with him that we may die also. That doesn't sound like a coward. That doesn't sound like a doubter. That sounds like a man of courage. Matter of fact, history tells us, although it's not in the Bible, but in, in church history, it tells us that, that Thomas became the apostle to India. And he started many churches and he pioneered and brought the gospel, the first one to bring the gospel to India. So man might label you, uh, but God has a different word for you. God has a different uh, a name he's going to call you, a different promise he makes over your life and over my life. We look at this parable this morning. It's known as the prodigal son, but, but the Bible doesn't tell us or call it the prodigal son. We call it that. But actually, the Bible uh, or the story just starts off by saying there were two sons. Now, um, I don't have a time to look into all of this. I might pick it up next Sunday, but actually both sons were lost. We're going to see that in a moment. Uh, one thing about Jesus that's pretty amazing is he spoke in simple terms. Jesus told stories that were real, that were authentic, that were um, just striking. They, were, they, they went right to the heart. Matter of fact, in Jesus' ministry, in the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, four different authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving their perspective or their eyewitness accounts or what they heard others confirmed by the Holy Spirit, but they give a different perspective. Just like you and I, if we were right to write a, um, an account of something, we would flavor it with our background, our vocabulary, our way of looking at it. But the apostles or the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were not all apostles, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, they gave the ministry or they... Uh, listed the teachings of Jesus. And what's interesting is that one-third to possibly one-half of Jesus' teachings were in parables. Jesus spoke in parables. What is a parable? Simply put, a parable is a fictional story with a moral lesson. A parable is a story about everyday life that has a spiritual meaning. 
A parable is meant to teach a lesson, a truth, or a moral. This parable has universal appeal because in all lands, in all ages, there have been what we call prodigals. The great preacher Spurgeon, in church history, he is known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the most uh, read and prolific uh, writers uh, of sermons that have been recorded and have, have been disseminated around the world. He is known as one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. He said this, he said, this parable is a very familiar one, yet it is so full of sacred meaning that it always has some fresh lesson for us. Richly detail, detailed, powerfully dramatic, and intensely personal. He calls this parable the most instructive of all Jesus' parables. So let's look at Luke chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance, basically. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. There's where we get the prodigal son in this translation. Prodigal means wasteful. It means spending your money foolishly. It means just burning a hole in your pocket. Some of you know what that means, amen? But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Verse 16, and he would gladly had filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, or another translation said, he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his oldest son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your father has come and because he has received him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. 
Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may, might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. What a beautiful parable that we have. Again, with universal appeal because of the relevancy and the reality of every time and every nation and every place, there have been prodigals. You see, the Bible begins and says there are two sons. There was a younger and an elder. For us to better understand the context, for us to better understand that why Jesus taught this parable, we have to go back to verses one and two. How many of you have your Bibles with you this morning? I know you read off the wall, I mean off the screen. But it's good to have a Bible, it's good to have something that you read, sometimes the hard copy is good, sometimes the phone is good, sometimes the phone could be a distraction. I'm going to come where you live just to make sure you're staying in the Word of God this morning, amen, amen. Those of you sitting around, anybody looking at their phone, just look over and say, are you in the Word? Come on, the preacher's preaching this morning, he's breaking the bread of life, he's speaking the truth of God, and you think something on social media is more exciting, you're out of your mind. Hallelujah. Come on, you need, brother, just make sure you, you follow me. Come on, we trained you better than that. Come on, you did such a good job in Liberia. But we look into the word of God this morning, and we understand that context is important. We don't just pick a verse here and a verse there and a verse there. That doesn't work well. We need to read the word. We need to understand the context. Just like you can't overhear one phrase of what somebody is saying in a conversation as you walk by and think that is the whole theme of the message. That can be one phrase you take out of context. So we're students of the word. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a student of the word. Amen. So we go back to verses 1 and 2. Look what the Bible says. It says this. Now I want you to get this. I want you to listen this morning. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. The Bible says the tax collectors. Now, now none of, anybody like a tax collector? Come on, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Every one of you is very clever when it comes to your taxes. Maybe some of you are too clever if you know what I mean. But tax collectors in the first century didn't just take taxes. They, they, they cheated people. They were dishonest. They were so dishonest and they cheated so much that they would be categorized with sinners. They would be classified as someone who was not a good person of moral standing. So the Bible says all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Wow. 
The people were drawing near to Jesus to hear his word. What a far cry from today. Many Christians, we, we, we run from sinners or sinners see us and they run from us. Hello? Oh, don't, I, I can't get into that this morning. Holy Spirit, help me. I want to say things that are good, but they, I got to stick with my message. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I don't want to become so stuffy, so stiff, so religious that people run, that sinners run from me. I don't know if you're reading the same Bible that I'm reading, but the Bible says that tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. There was something about Jesus that we, we need to re rediscover. Because of our religiosity, because of the way we view scripture from our background, from our church affiliation, from our religious perspective, that, that we don't see that Jesus was magnetistic. He, he had a certain magnetism about him. Tax collectors and sinners wanted to hear what he had to say. Why? Because people that are sinning, people that are chasing after pleasure, that are chasing after other things, eventually they come to the end of themselves and they realize there's got to be more to life. And Jesus spoke with such authority and his words rang with such astonishing truth that people were drawn to him. I'm going to keep you awake this I'm going to keep you busy this morning, my brother. How many of you are still with me? Yes. Now you would think that that would make everybody happy. That we have a preacher who's preaching the word of God. We have the prince of preachers. We have the son of God, the eternal word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1. John 1.14, the Bible says, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. I love the, the balance. I love, I love that, 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 that special uh, supernatural uh, balance that, that only he had. That we need to learn of. That we need to walk in. He had grace and he had truth. It was the same coin but different sides. One side was grace, the other side was truth. You, you can't divide them, you can't, you can't separate them, they come together. Jesus had such a way about him that the Bible says tax collectors and sinners drew near, drew near to him to hear what he had to say. You would think everybody would be happy, you would think that it would be awesome, you would think that people would be cheering him on, especially the religious people. Especially the church-going people. Especially those who knew the word of God. Those who studied the scriptures. Those who desired holiness and righteousness. Which the Pharisees and the scribes, that's who they were. That's what they were about. But what became, what happened with them, it became a lot of outward. It became a lot of show for people. It became a religiosity. An outward, but their heart was not right with God. And, and look at the next verse. I'm, I'm setting the context for you. 
Come on, if we're going to study the word of God, we don't want to be off the wall. We don't want to be just listening to little snippets on YouTube that tell us one phrase and some preachers preach some cockamamie foolish things. We got to get into the word and dig in it for ourselves and know that we're hearing what the word of God says and not the word of man, not something that sells, not something that draws people, but the truth. Because ultimately the truth will draw people. Can you say amen? Verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes, the church people, murmured. The church people, the scribes, the Pharisees, they murmured saying this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How many of you have the same Bible I have, or at least a close yes. translation? Doesn't that, isn't that what your Bible says? The Pharisees and scribes. Now, the Pharisees were the religious group of that day that were literalists. They held to the Old Testament literally. They believed it was the word of God, and they practiced holiness, and they dressed the part, they spoke the part, they acted the part, but what happened was it became religion, it became outward, it became a show. Right, right. Because the scriptures tell us about the Pharisees, they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. They were more concerned what other church people thought of them. So they stroked them, they told them what they wanted to hear, they, they said all the right words, they knew how to play the church game, they knew how to do all that stuff. But the Bible says, Jesus said they loved the praises of men rather than the praises of God. And it also goes on to say, and I don't have, can't give you all the characteristics of the Pharisees, but in one place, the Bible says that, that they love the money. For, for, for money, they would make long prayers. They would hallelujah, we're praying, and then they had the hand out. <laughs> These are the Pharisees, so here's Jesus breaking the bread of life. Here's Jesus sharing the eternal word of God. Here's Jesus showing the people the love of God for all people. And the Bible says the Pharisees and scribes, they murmured saying, this man, the audacity, he receives sinners and he eats with them. So what does Jesus do? Verse three, so he spoke this parable. So Jesus goes on to speak three parables. Three parables that were inspired by or motivated by the critical spirit of the religious people. Hello? He goes to speak three parables now. He's going to tell three stories, three earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Three earthly stories, practical everyday life stories with a spiritual meaning to drive home the point. But it's motivated by the critical spirit of the religious leaders. Now you've got to get this. Because he tells us about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. But I want to show you what the emphasis is on each parable. Verse 7, for the first parable of the lost sheep, it says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He tells another parable about a lost coin, and here's the conclusion, here's the punchline. Verse 10, likewise I say to you, there is more joy in, in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Again, the lost son, verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. What is he saying? In verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 32, he's driving home a point to the self-righteous, critical religious crowd by revealing what makes heaven rejoice. He was saying to them, you should be rejoicing. You should be happy. You should be excited that I'm meeting with sinners and I'm breaking the bread of life and I'm telling them eternal truth. You should be happy. Instead, they murmur and they complain. He says, I want you to have a different perspective. I want you to understand that in heaven, when one sinner repents, turns to God, heaven goes to rejoicing. We should be that same way, amen? When we see someone go to an altar to accept Jesus Christ, when we see someone say a sinner's prayer or commit their life to Christ or begin to come to church, we should be cheering them on. We should be rejoicing because that's what heaven rejoices over. So what does this story tell us? The Bible tells us of a man, and the man in this story, the father, portrays God the father. We need to get that this morning. You see, because in this parable, Jesus is going to tell about two sons. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners. The elder son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus is going to hit both crowds or both groups of people. He's going to, he's going to tell a story that, that at the punchline, they're both going to be hit with, a, with an arrow, if you will. You see, in God's eyes, the religious and the irreligious are in need of a savior. In God's eyes, it don't matter if you're down and out or up and out, you need God. In God's eyes, it doesn't matter if you appear righteous to people or if you're the worst of sinners, you still need a Savior. All people need Jesus. That's what Paul in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 of his great theological treatise, one of the most theological of Paul the Apostle's writings is Romans. And in that book, he sets out under the inspiration of God a, a divine argument, a courtroom scene, if you will, where he lays out like a lawyer systematically saying that all are under the judgment of sin. All mankind are sinners, Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious. All people need a savior. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It don't matter. We want to categorize people. Worse sins, less sins. Bad sins, not so bad sins. White lies, black lies. All lies are lies. Don't give me this white lie stuff. There are a lot of white lying Christians. Turn to the person next to you and say, uh-oh, he's coming close. The younger son, the Bible says in verse 12, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. You know what the son is asking? He's asking for his inheritance. In, in the custom of the day, the firstborn son would get two-thirds. 
two, two portions of an inheritance. If there, were, if there were five kids or six kids, he would get two portions. Each one would get one portion. The firstborn had the birthright. But here's the youngest son. He's saying, Father, give me my inheritance. In essence, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. In essence, he's saying, you know what? I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you kick the bucket. So he tells his father this. He says, I want my inheritance. And the Bible says that his father divided it up and gave it to him. Verse 13 says, not many days after, the young son gathered all together. And he journeyed to a far country. He was probably looking for the bright lights of L.A., he was probably looking for New York City. He was probably, he wanted to get away from, from the village. He wanted to get away from his family. He wanted to go far out there and do what he wanted to do. He had money now. He can go and live the good life. And isn't that a mentality of many young people? And some of you older people think you're younger. You want to act like that. Grow up, amen. Turn to the person next to you say, your pastor loves you. He's just trying to shock you into reality. I know what I'm talking about. You don't know what I deal with as a pastor. Some church people, what? Amen. Praise the Lord. He journeyed to a far country. The Bible says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That means wasteful. That means wild living. That means a reckless manner. He was just spending, he was just blowing money. Why? Because he goes to the city, he's a big man, he's got money in his pocket. Now he can spend, he can buy, he can do what he wants to do. And, and you know what? When you've got money and, and, and you know, the wine is flowing and the drinks are flowing and the girls are around, you draw a crowd. But what happens when the money's gone? All your friends are gone. Hello? And believe me, that time will come. It always comes. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You will get paid. Some paydays are later than others. Some of you have to wait a week. Some of you have to wait two weeks. In some countries, they get paid monthly, but they get paid. And the wages of sin, there are wages. There are pleasures too, right? If there were no pledges, the devil didn't, wouldn't have a, a job. Hello? There's pleasure in alcohol. There's pleasure in illicit sex. There's pleasure in all those things. And the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but the season comes to an end, and the, and the payday comes, and the guilt comes, and the consequences come, and they always do. The Bible says, do not be, be deceived. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. He who sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption but he who sows to the spirit shall reap everlasting life the bible says he spent it all he spent it all all his inheritance and the bible says there arose a famine and he began to be in want the bible says he began verse 14 he began to be in want let me tell you sin the pleasures of this world do not satisfy the spiritual part of us. They satisfy our flesh, but there's a spiritual part in all of us that only God 
Only Jesus can satisfy. The Bible says in Isaiah, you that hunger and thirst, why do you spend money on things that do not satisfy? Why do you buy bread that cannot satisfy you? The Lord says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you and I will satisfy you. I will fulfill you. This world cannot satisfy you. If it, if it, if it could, then all the movie stars would be happy. All, the, all the, the professional athletes, all the influencers on social media. I am so blown away by constantly hearing that social media influencers are committing suicide. Dying of overdoses. Why? Because the very thing they thought would satisfy left them in want. Left them empty. Left them hopeless and helpless. Why? Because the things of this world cannot satisfy. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is, is of, the, of the world and it passes away. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Do we really believe that? This prodigal son, he wasted all his livelihood. He spent it all, all the pleasures. We don't know all he did. His older brother uh, gave us a little insight. He could have been wrong. He could have been just surmising, saying he, he wasted it on prostitutes. But however, whatever, he came to a point of emptiness. He spent it all. The Bible says there arose a famine. And so here he is, he, he needs a job, he gets desperate. He goes and he begins to feed pigs. Now understand, and, and this would have really shocked the listeners, because in Jew, him to now go and feed pigs, you couldn't get any lower. This is his rock bottom. I wish we, we could all change without hitting rock bottom. I wish we can learn from other people's mistakes. I wish we can learn the easy way. And, and some of us maybe do by God's wisdom and by God's grace, but it just seems that most of us have to learn the hard way. Turn to the person next to you and say, I don't know if it's my hard head or what, but I learned the hard way. You see, pigs were unclean animals. You couldn't eat them, you couldn't touch them, you couldn't go near them. But he was so desperate that he begins to feed them. He begins to tend for them. And he's not getting paid good because the Bible says he didn't even have enough to eat. The Bible says he would have eaten the slop. He was feeding the pigs. Here he is. All of his money is gone. Now his friends are gone. You know... It's been said in life, in your prosperity, your friends know you. In your adversity, you know your friends. That's a good, that's a nugget of truth right there. In your prosperity, your friends know you. But in your adversity, you'll know your true friends who are there for you, who care for you, who are praying for you, who reach out to you when you're hurting. And you say, well, I don't know you were hurting. Well, open your eyes. Get a word from God. Everybody wants to have a word from God. Everyone wants to be led by the Spirit. Anybody led by the Spirit to know when someone's hurting? Your true friends will be there for you. 
We'll call you up. We'll pray for you. We'll stand with you. We'll take you out for lunch. We'll take you out for dinner. Listen, I'm not asking for anybody to take me out for lunch, me and my wife today. I'm not saying it for that. I'll buy you lunch. Amen. But, peep, but, but see, here he is. And, he, and he, he's making very little. He desires to even eat the food that the pigs are eating. He's at rock bottom. I've said it before, people don't change usually until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Why? Because change is hard, let's face it. Change is hard. You see, we hit rock bottom, but only God knows someone's rock bottom. Listen, we all go back to the old ways once the pressure or the heat is off. Come on, that's a good, that's a good word right there. When, when we're desperate, we, we're, we're prayer warriors, we're coming to church, but when the heat's off, we kind of revert back to the old patterns and the old ways. Until we have a fundamental, life-changing transformation in our heart and in our spirit and in our character, that's the way it'll be until God deals with us. And God loves us too much to leave us in our bondage. See, this, this parable is about the love of the Father. Here is this man, this young boy, this young man, probably commentators say he was probably 18, 19 years old. But God loves us too much to leave us there. God will work on us. God will deal with us. God will mold us. God will shape us. God will remake us. There's a prophet in the Old Testament called Hosea. How many of you know there was a book written by Hosea in the Old Testament? That's why you need to buy the Through the Bible Bible so you'll, you'll, you'll meet Hosea once a year. But the, 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 the main summary, without getting into it, because I've got to finish, the main theme of the book is God's love for the backslider. The main theme of the book is God's love for those who have gone astray. I want you to know God still loves sinners. He loves all sinners. He loves moral sinners and he loves bad sinners. He loves good sinners and bad sinners. He loves all sinners. I've got so much to say and I don't have the time to say it in one sermon. Well, let, let me just say this. Hosea chapter 2 verse 6. I want to read this because it's so good. Here's, here's how, God deals with, how, how God deals with us and how God dealt with, with, with the younger son. He began to be in want. He got desperate. He hit rock bottom. Look what it says in, in Hosea chapter 6. Therefore, this is God speaking, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then, everyone say, then. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold. What was God saying? God was saying through the prophet Hosea, listen, I, when I love you so much, I will not allow you to continue in your idolatry and chasing other lovers that will eventually destroy your life, that I will hedge up your way, I will put thorns, I will put barriers in the way, that the only path will lead you back to me. Isn't God good? 
He loves us so much. He loves us too much to let us continue in our sin and our rebellion without disciplining us and without bringing chastening and judgment. Not because he hates us, not because he's against us, but because God is for us. God loves us. See, God will make it uncomfortable because he loves us. God will be, be in our way to, to keep us from going the wrong directions. And, and, and the Bible says, the Bible says that he spent it all. He got so low, he's feeding swine. No one's given him anything. He, he could just about barely survive. And that's what sin does. Sin is a journey that takes you further than you want to go. Sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. Sin costs you more than you want to pay. But I love verse 17, and I conclude with this. The Bible says, when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. Another translation says, when he came to himself. He had, a, he had a little self-awareness. Self-awareness is a powerful thing. Some people just, just oblivious to themselves. They don't comprehend their, how they relate or how they present themselves. But self-awareness is good because then you can make self-improvement. Hello? He came to himself. He came to his senses. This is his repentance. This is his turnaround. This is him realizing I'm on the wrong road. I'm on the wrong path. I'm going in the wrong direction. Somehow, someway, it tells me that he had a moral framework. He had a, an upbringing in the church. Let me tell you, young people, I know you might complain that your parents drag you to church. I know you might complain that you're, you're forced to come sometimes. But let me tell you, in the end, it'll be better for you. You'll have a moral framework. You'll have something to work with when you need it. You don't think you need it now, but trust me, one day you will need it. I guarantee it upon the authority of God's word. You will need it. He came to him senses. He said, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is a better way to live. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God for a moral framework. Thank God for some spiritual understanding. Thank God that if you hide your, his word in your heart, the Holy Spirit can bring it back. Even if it was that little, little, little Sunday school class, that little children's church jingle, you learned Psalm 23, whatever it was, or John 3.16, it could come back to you powerfully. It could come back to you powerfully and change you. The Bible said he came to his senses. The Bible said he came to himself. One commentator said, when you, are in a, when you are alienated from God, you are alienated from yourself. You can't know yourself or relate to yourself if you are running from your creator. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the presence of God, when the Holy Spirit's working in me, when the word of God is alive, I feel the most free. Hello? The sun begins to, to have a, 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 a speech prepared, if you will. Look what he says. 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, when in, in, in Bible times in the first century, people were so concerned about taking the Lord's name in vain. So instead of saying God, they would say heaven. They would insert, we see it in the, in the, in the stories throughout the New Testament or throughout the Gospels when it talks about the kingdom of God. Another, another writer says the kingdom of heaven. It uses, it uses the word heaven for God just so they would not ever take that name lightly or in vain. So what he was really saying, I've sinned against God. See, all sin, all sin, every sin, every form, every fashion, and every variety is a sin against God. But it's also a sin against other people. How many of you know you don't just sin by yourself? Oh, I can do what I want. Your sin affects other people. I don't have time. All right, let's finish. Let's finish. I will arise. I'll go to my father. And the Bible says, verse 20, and I love this. And he says, he arose and he came to his father. He arose and he came to his father. May God touch our children. May God touch a younger generation. May the Holy Spirit bring a revival amongst our younger people that they would return back home. Amen. I love this. Verse 20, but when he was still a great way off, he was still a great way off. His father saw him. Now just stop right there for a second. He was a great way off. His father saw him. What does that tell us? That's right. The, the father was waiting every day. Could this be the day? It's another day. It's been a year. It's been two years. This could be the day. He's still looking. He's still waiting. He's still hoping. He's still praying. He's still living in faith. He's still trusting that one day would be the day. This day might be it. The Bible says while he saw him afar off, he had compassion on him. Here's this boy stumbling, emaciated, hasn't eaten, here disheveled, hasn't shaved, probably his fingernails were long, he's dirty, he's unkept, he stinks, but his father sees him and has compassion. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about a man in a parable, we're talking about God the Father. We're talking about the heart of the Father towards wayward humanity. Whatever their sin is. If you watch some news stations, you'll classify sin, some sins worse than the other. But all sin is sin in the eyes of God. God loves all sinners. We should not be hating people. I don't have the time to say it again. The Bible says he had compassion. Now you gotta get this, you gotta get this. And he ran, he ran. Now I want you to, I want you to get this. In first century Palestine, Men wore robes. They wore Gucci robes. Especially this man. He had a lot of money. He had Gucci. All the, the lettering all over it. Now, men of his stature, men of his position, men esteemed as he was, 
they would not run. That was unbecoming. Because they would have to pull up their, their, their robe and, and bare their, their white little legs, skinny little legs. And they'd have to run. And that was unbecoming. So he's breaking the, the societal uh, uh, norms or protocol. And the Bible says he runs and he has compassion. Again, this is the heart of God. This is God longing for humanity to come back. This is Jesus portraying the heart of God to a self-righteous people who were, who were saying, those sinners, don't be around them, don't be with them. No, 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 God is saying, I love them. And, and when one sinner turns back, it might take a while, but you know what? Someone said the, the feet of repentance are slow, but the, the, the feet of, of forgiveness are swift. Meaning that we might take a long time, but as soon as we turn around, God is there. As soon as we turn to come back home, God is there. His love, his mercy, and his grace. And it is real. It's real. It's real. It's real. Here we have him. And you know what? The father does not give him the time to, to complete his speech. Because he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy of becoming. And you know what? The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put sandal on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Hallelujah. You see, here we have the robe. This best robe would have been the father's best robe. It would have been the most expensive. It would have been tailored. It would have been per perfection. It would have been the best. The father now gives it to his son. He takes a ring. The ring would have been a symbol of, of authority. It would have given his son back his privileges to make transactions, legal transactions. The father gives him shoes. You see, these were Nike, man's uh, dunk low off-white. <laughs> worth $1,740. I looked it up online. Some expensive sneakers. He gave him the robe, the ring, and the shoes. Now, slaves in that day did not wear shoes. Only freed people. Only reinstated people. And so here we have this son. He's brought back not as a slave, but he's a son again. He's brought back even though he squandered and wasted his, his father's inheritance or his inheritance and, and also affected the economy of the whole family. And here he is, reinstated. The robe. You see, when you and I come back, we can, our garments are tattered and torn by sin and unrighteousness and filth and shame. The sins we've committed, no one would want them to be put up on the screen. Things we thought. Turn to the person next to you and say, you don't know what, want to know what I've done. You wouldn't look at me the way you look at me. But you know what? We come to Jesus like that but no matter what we've done, he puts a robe of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. We're now clothed with the royal robes of sonship. The ring represents the authority of God. Think we were beggars. 
We were slaves. We were in the gutter. Now we've been raised up. We're children of the king, children of the most high God. Now we can transact business. Now we can minister the gospel and minister to people and touch people's lives. Once we were slaves, now we're free. Now we're sons of God with the authority of God, a ring of authority. And we are no longer slaves. We have new shoes, new sandals. Would you stand together with me this morning? F.B. Meyer said about our sins, God does more than forget. He sets the joy bells ringing and cries, let us be merry. He does more than this. He insets the scars of our sins with jewels. Where sin abounded, his grace abounds much more. And all because of the blood that has set us free and released the wealth of mercy. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul, my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. At Calvary. This morning, the Father wants you to come back home. Maybe you've been hiding. Maybe you're even hiding in church. Think about that. That wasn't in my notes. Maybe you're hiding even in church. The Father wants you to come home. Coming home is not a building. Coming home is not some ceremony. Coming home is not becoming a member. Coming home means you turn. You come to your senses. You realize what God has said in His Word, that sin, sin is grievous. Sin is detrimental. Sin ruins lives. No one starts out shooting heroin, snorting coke. They start out with cigarettes. Then they go to marijuana, they smoke pot. People say, well, not everyone that smokes pot becomes a heroin addict, but you know what? Every heroin addict started with pot. Come on now. I, I know that sounds far out for some of you, but, but, but the white lies lead to brown lies that lead to black lies that lead to... <laughs> whatever <laughs> come on it starts so subtly sin is so subtle that's why the Bible says we need to encourage one another daily lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin that means we need to encourage one another daily we need to be in the word we need to be with, in fellowship daily why? because sin is deceitful any of us, all of us can go down the wrong path if we allow ourselves we don't have boundaries if we don't have certain things set in place to keep us we call them we call them jersey barriers on the highway what do they do they keep you if you go off track at least you don't go off the the bridge or you don't go off into plummeting down to destruction it keeps you and we need to have that in our life and some some boundaries and because sin is sin is is horrible it'll take you further it'll keep you longer it'll cost you more but today, eyes are closed. I want to ask, is there anyone that's humble enough, that's coming to their senses, that's realizing things and says, I want to come home today. There's no judgment. Maybe the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, hopefully none of them are here this morning. But there's no judgment. There's rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Maybe there's some religious people that need to repent.
whoever, whatever, come to the Father. Come back home today. Come on, the Spirit of God is pleading with you. Young person, don't, don't think, well, I want to go out and enjoy myself. Sin is a journey no, to nowhere. Come to the Father. Come back home. While they begin to sing, I want you to move out of your seat. If you need to come back to the Father, to whatever degree, whatever your situation is, I want you to move out of your seat. We want to pray with you. You're not coming here to be seen by men or to worry about what people think. And we're not watching in the congregation who's coming, why they're coming. Stop that nonsense. Be praying. Be loving people. Be rejoicing that people are turning. Amen. As they begin to sing, you move out of your seat. You come today. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Come back home. Let today be a, a day of new beginnings. Come on, there's no, there's no judgment here. There's no, no condemnation. There's rejoicing. 